The Honorable, the Judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oyez, 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 all persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to draw nigh and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Please be seated. All right, we will um, begin argument in the state of Alvarez versus the Rockefeller Foundation. And um, Mr. Beckman, please. May it please the court. My name is Paul Beckman, and along with Ron Jenkins, we represent the appellants in this case. This case was brought in 2015. Uh, in the United States District Court for the District of Maryland, uh, pursuant to the Alien Tort Statute. This case involved the violation and aiding and abetting of the violations of international law involving nine... I, I think that right, right from the outset, uh, we need to acknowledge that what happened here was odious beyond belief. And there's no question about that. And you, you never experiment in this way with other human beings without their consent. And it, it brings to mind historical echoes of the most despicable sort. But the question is, of course, as you and I both recognize, um, whether the Rockefeller Foundation can be held in any way responsible for the despicable acts that occurred. And so that's what we'd like to hear from you. We appreciate you being here. Thank you, Judge Wilkinson, and I'll direct myself directly to that. This case involves Frederick Soper, who was not only an employee of the Rockefeller Foundation, but at the time of this experiment was an associate director of the International Health Division of Rockefeller, and pursuant to the Constitution of the Rockefeller Foundation, was deemed to be an officer of the corporation. What specific task was he undertaking, though, for the Rockefeller Foundation while he was in Guatemala? What he was doing, Judge Hudson, was furthering the mission of the Rockefeller Foundation that it had been involved in for many, many years. And that is the investigation relating to syphilis, syphilis experiments, looking to find a cure for syphilis, uh, even to the extent that the Rockefeller Foundation was involved in funding an entire operation in Baltimore <clears throat> at Johns Hopkins Hospital. But Dr. He, operated, he wasn't operating under the control of the Rockefeller Foundation, though. He was, he operating, was independent. He was operating under the control, Your Honor, because he had to report back to the Rockefeller Foundation on a monthly basis, which he did while this experiment was going on in 1947. What specific directions did the Rockefeller Foundation give to him during the time he was in Guatemala? The 
responsibilities that he had related to the fact, Judge Hudson, that Dr. Soper, physician, was designated as the investigator slash responsible official for this quote-unquote study, this experiment. And as such, he had the responsibility, if something was to be done relating to the fact that you're dealing with healthy subjects in a study experiment, that you have to protect them from anything untoward. You the, are the responsible opposing, for their safety. Uh, the opposing counsel says that um, this individual never sought um, direction or guidance from the Rockefeller Foundation in connection with this, and that the um, Rockefeller Foundation itself um, never commented or provided guidance to Dr. Soper or, or anyone in connection with the um, uh, Guatemalan um, enterprise. Well, firstly, Judge Wilkinson, the Rockefeller Foundation provided an expert to testify in this case, Susan Lederer. I took her deposition in New York. And she testified that as the investigator on this experiment, which he was designated as, the responsible official for this experiment, he had the obligation, working with healthy subjects, to protect their safety, and he did not do that. So can I ask, the problem that that seems to create to me is that it seems like we're doing like two levels of vicarious liability. I mean, let me get, if, if I'm wrong about this, please tell me, but, but I, what I just heard you say is what you accuse Dr. Soper of doing is not adequately supervising and overseeing other people's behavior, but he's responsible because he's their boss. And so it seems to me like the people who do the primary bad actions you're saying, are attributable to Dr. Soper because he's their boss. And those bad actions are then attributed to Rockefeller because Rockefeller is his boss. That seems pretty attenuated to me, I so, guess I'll say. So, Your Honor, here's my response. Judge Garbus, who was the initial judge in this case, and Judge Schwang, who succeeded him due to a illness, <clears throat> both held that the restatement of law, common law, federal common law, is applicable, as well as the doctrine of respondeat superior. Respondeat superior, as your honors well know from your extensive practice and service on the bench, raises the question of agency here. And agency is ordinarily a question of fact for the jury. And in this particular case, I would submit to you that there are extensive disputes of material fact which should have been submitted to the jury, but which Judge Schwang made decisions on his own. And let me give you examples of that. Please. Dr. Sober. The, the, the difficulty I'm having is that 
<clears throat> you have to. It seemed to me, reading the record as a whole, that the Rockefeller Foundation may have been sitting on the sidelines, um, and that the primary movements here were uh, PASB um, and conceivably Dr. Soper, although though Dr. Soper's own involvement with the um, enterprise seems to be fairly remote um, as well, but you have to take these two steps, and I think Judge Heightens emphasized them for you. You've got to find that <clears throat> Dr. Soper was somehow intimately involved in designing or conducting this, and that not only was Dr. Soper involved, but the Rockefeller Foundation was involved in some way too. So you have to, there are two levels of involvement um, here that have to be established. Um, and but I think, the, I think the, the first is difficult to establish and, and the second level of involvement of the Rockefeller Foundation is even more difficult. I mean, it, it, the two hurdles go from difficult to very, very difficult. So my response, Judge Wilkinson, is this. This is a corporation, the Rockefeller Foundation, which can only act by its officers, servants, and employees, of which Dr. Soper, Dr. Soper was one. He was assigned to go to Guatemala and into the International Health Division by Dr. Strode, who was an employee of the Rockefeller Foundation and the head of the International Health Division. Can I ask you the question, but who formally appointed him? I mean, I guess, again, cards on the table. It, I'm just thinking about people in and around D.C. There are all of these paragovernmental organizations in D.C., who in some sense have missions that in some sense are related to the federal government and who view their job in some sense to place people in government positions. Totally posit that all of that's true. But my assumption, generally speaking, is that when people leave, I don't know, LDF and go to work for the Department of Justice, they are agents of the Department of Justice. They are not acting as agents of LDF or of Public Citizen or of the Heritage Foundation. So why is this different than that? I, I get that Rockefeller probably thought it was really great to place people in positions of influence. But when, when he's doing the thing as the investigator, what is your best evidence that he is? So it's, the question is not whether he's still an agent of Rockefeller in some sense. I mean, I'm an agent of the federal government, but I do plenty of things in my life that are not in my capacity as an agent of the federal government. And so what is your best evidence? Not that he was an agent of Rockefeller in some sense, but that when he was doing the things that you claim are wrongful, he was acting in his capacity as an agent of Rockefeller. First of all, Your Honor, he was being paid by the Rockefeller Foundation during the time that he was in Guatemala. Okay, but I would follow paid, up on that because they paid I don't for think they, but this, organ, this governmental organization wasn't paying anyone a salary. So if that's enough, then it seems like every single person who's working for the PASB is an agent of, of someone else. Too. But the difference here, Your Honor, is that he's the responsible official. And the point is here that he was in Guatemala. He went to meet with Dr. Cutler, who was the U.S. Public Health Service 
doctor who was working on this program. Uh, that, that brings up another, another point. This case was brought under the um, Alien Tort Statute, Correct. was it not? Yes. And the, looking at it as a whole, you seem to have two problems. One is the question of agency here, which, as my colleagues point out, is attenuated. And, and I think the Supreme Court has been careful about um, sort of constructing agency relationships that hold people responsible um, as principles that have nothing to do with whatever happened, um, that you're tagging a principal um, with an agency's actions when the principal is blameless. There's a different kind of thing, I think, than pure respondeat superior. But if we even went in the direction of respondeat superior, I mean, you've got this standard oil case from the Supreme Court which says um, that the, even something like the payment of wages um, is not enough to establish um, an agency relationship. And even if you get past those problems, there's still, we, district courts can be affirmed on alternate grounds. And if this were brought under the alien tort statute, um, there's always a presumption against the extraterritorial application of that particular statute. And the Supreme Court has said, this is going to be very narrowly construed. And we have one case after another after another that says the ATS has no application to torts committed abroad and that that basic principle is not unsettled, even if the corporate headquarters are in the United States. And so you, you look at what happened here, um, and the experiment took place in Guatemala, and the uh, injuries were visited upon the plaintiffs in Guatemala, and the tortious conduct of non-consent was in Guatemala, and so, given the combined force of, of, of Kiobel and RG, RJ, R. Nabisco and Nestle, those cases all suggest that courts ought to be very, very careful about applying the alien tort statute in an extraterritorial fashion. So there just seem to me to be all kinds of, of hurdles, even if you get, get past all the difficulties in the agency question, you're met with a new set of them. Your Honor, my time is up, but let me just respond quickly to your question. You sure may. The fact of the matter is this is very similar to Al-Shamiri, which this court uh, had decided, very similar. Actions took place overseas, conceived in the United States. This entire project was conceived in the United States. The headquarters were in the United States. The PSAB was in the United States. But secondly, and most importantly here, as the 
Dr. Soper went to but Guatemala. The, the Nestle case says that corporate presence in the United States and even corporate decision-making in the United States does not suffice to establish a domestic application of the ATS. And if I take the combined lesson of the Supreme Court's ATS statutes, it says, do not go applying this statute extraterritoriality because there's such a, a strong presumption against it. And the center of gravity of this, this tort seems to be Guatemala, where all of the odious and nefarious acts were undertaken. And can, can you maybe, or your colleague, address that in your rebuttal? Yes, without any question. Okay. And just to respond, Your Honor, sure. I wanted to adhere to your request initially that I focus in on the issue of agency, which is what I attempted to do. But the only other thing that I would say that is extremely important for the court to look at two things that are in the record where Dr. Soper indicated that he was a member and employed by the Rockefeller Foundation from 1920 to 1950. And he did it and he said it under oath. All right. We thank you, sir. Um, Mr. McGinley, would you like, uh, we'd like to hear from your, on your side of it. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Michael McGinley from Deckard LLP on behalf of the Rockefeller Foundation Appellee. I want to start by echoing what you said, Your Honor, at the very outset. No one here disputes that what happened in Guatemala was unethical. It was an atrocity. It's a stain yeah, it's on terrible. human history. But, but the question, as you pointed out, is who's responsible for that? And particularly, is the Rockefeller Foundation responsible for that? And the resounding answer in light of the record is no. Well, can we begin by, it's, it's not just terrible and atrocity, but for purposes of this case, right, we assume there is an international norm prohibiting. It's not just that it's bad, that this case comes to us on the assumption this is a violation of an internationally recognizable norm, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. You know, the only thing I'd point out is, as for the reasons that Judge Wilkinson um, pointed out during the, the opening, that doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the ATS applies or, and certainly does not mean that it applies well, but to this the foundation. Is the, that this is, this is the kind of norm that if this sort of thing happened in the United States or in a way that wasn't extraterritorial and had been done by an individual, this is the kind, it, it comes to us on the premise, this is the kind of thing you could sue under the ATS for. It, it comes on that premise, and certainly I would agree with that if, if Dr. Soper, for example, were the defendant here. And all the conduct occurred in the United States and everything and all, that happened and all is the, the same. Correct, okay. correct, Your Honor. Um, you know, I would obviously point out the Supreme Court in a series of cases, a number of justices have suggested that the ATS might be limited only to the three traditional torts. We're not making that argument to you here. We've preserved it for the sake that if it ever becomes the law of the land, we've adequately, you know, pr protected our client, but we are coming on the premise. And can I try to narrow the sure. dispute one step further? So in Aziz and El-Shamari, this court squarely held there is aiding and abetting liability under the ATS. And in Nestle, the Supreme Court reserved the question, but did not answer the question. So do you agree that under our sort of panel precedent rule, we have to take this case on the assumption that there is such a thing as aiding and abetting liability under the ATS? For the purposes of this panel, yes, that's correct, Your Honor. Okay. Right. And, and the reason that we have no problem saying that is because it's so clear that the Rockefeller Foundation 
was not the principle that Dr. Soper was serving here. There are a number of other problems under the ATS that Judge Wilkinson has identified. And I'll start with agency. Sure, I, I, the reason I'll close off on the aiding and abetting, it strikes me that the, the thing that makes the extraterritoriality issue hard is that we have to posit there's aiding and abetting liability. If there's no aiding and abetting liability, your extraterritoriality argument gets much stronger. But since we have to posit there's aiding and abetting liability, I guess, would you agree that in general, the fact that there's aiding and abetting liability means it is more challenging rather than less challenging to make your extraterritoriality argument? You'd be in a better position if there was no aiding and abetting liability, right? Well, I, that may or may not be so, but it's sort of like asking what shade of blue is the sky, right? I mean, we, we, think, that, we think that it's quite clear that there's a very clear extraterritoriality problem. But I, what I would say to you, Your Honor, is if you look at how Judge Schwong handled this, I think it's actually quite telling. And, it, and I think it does go to what you're getting at, which is he goes through the extraterritoriality, and, and he never says this is a permissible Agreed. application. What he says is ultimately it leads him to the question of was there agency. And then he says there's no agency, so I really don't need to get Agreed. to that question. And I think it's perfectly fine if that's how the there court was. There was only to... one cause of action brought here, and that was is not under the alien tort statute. Correct. So, uh, I, Judge, I should I want to be very clear. I don't want to misstate. There was originally a cause of action under Guatemala law that was thrown out at motion to dismiss, and they've not appealed that. So at this point, the only valid cause we're, of action. We're purely dealing with the ATS. Correct, Your Honor. Correct. So there's a question of agency there, and then there's a question of, um, uh, I, um, uh, I was under the impression, given the Supreme Court's decision and the, given the fact that they uh, took the presumption against extraterritoriality, um, so clearly that they were focusing in on the individuals that committed the tortious acts. Correct. And that the fact that there's some corporate headquarters in the United States um, or even corporate decision-making in the United States that does not justify the primary focus of the ATS, which is on the individuals who actually committed the tortious acts because otherwise um, you would um, open the doors uh, to a, a great many tortious acts that are, if you could sue the company for the, the corporation for every little thing that went wrong and, and even horribly wrong, in another country and say, no, the company's responsible for this. And um, Nestle seems to me to be, the Supreme Court generally seems to me reluctant to open the door that wide. And the way that they enforce this presumption against extraterritoriality is to function on the time, the place, the manner, the individual, that committed the, the tortious acts. I, I completely agree, Your Honor. And I, the other thing I'd say is, not only is that, that clear as a matter of law from Nestle, but here we have a situation where 
the domestic conduct that my friend on the other side points to is not even the Rockefeller Foundation's conduct. He says that, oh, there was domestic conduct because the Public Health Service and the PASB and all of these government actors did certain things in the U.S. I think under Nestle, even those things aren't sufficient, but none of those things are attributable in any way to the Rockefeller Foundation, and there's not a shred of evidence that they point to that's specific to the RF. The other thing... But there are these dual hurdles of agency and extraterritorial applications, and, you know, they may seem like they're sort of different, but in the end, they come down to the whole question of attenuation um, and how involved was the Rockefeller Foundation in what went horribly wrong. Um, and so, you know, this in, in, a, in a curious way, the roads do lead to Rome, um, and that is to this basic basic point of attenuation. I, I agree, Your Honor. I, and as I said to Judge Haydens, I think that's in some sense how Judge Schwang's analysis proceeded. And I would say to you, there's nothing that leads to the Rockefeller Foundation here. I'll just take one example where I think that my friends on the other side, with all respect, have, have attempted to uh, misdirect this court. They talk about these reports that Dr. Soper supposedly provided. They cite JA pages 1239 to 42. If you go and look at those pages, first of all, I'd say they didn't cite those to the district court, so they're out of bounds. But there's a good reason that they didn't cite them. Because what those reports show is that he was actually giving substantive reports for 1946, which was the year before he was elected to the PASB. For the three months in those reports after he was elected to the PASB, they simply say, on duty with the PASB. Nothing in those reports ever say anything about the Guatemala experiments. After April of 1947, there's not a single report at that point. So the notion that he was surreptitiously passing information back to the RF about the Guatemala experience is an, is an entire fiction that they pled at the pleading stage and Judge Schwang correctly held that they utterly failed to prove on, in the no, evidence. It, 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 is, it is both shocking and disturbing that in the 1940s, um, after the horrors of the Holocaust and all of the odious human experimentation that was going on, and American troops under the example of uh, General Eisenhower had made clear the horrors of those concentration camps and just laid bare the despicable conduct that was going on there. And it may not bear on this question of law and the attenuation, but you know, Judge Heitens referred, I think, aptly to the norms by which civilization conducts itself. And after the horrors of the Holocaust were laid bare, how in the world does anybody engage in this kind of experimentation, which was the very core of the horrors that the concentration camp had um, 
visited upon those who were dragged there. How does it, how could this have been done in, night, in, 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 in light of what we knew by that time? I completely agree with you, Your Honor, and, and that's why we started by saying it's atrocious, frankly. I think when you look at the record, the, the question of how it could be done, look, I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't there, and I think it's awful. Well, it doesn't, it, it may, but, not, answer the, it, it, it may right. not answer the question of law. I don't, I, I, I don't think it does. I don't think you can assign responsibility where responsibility basically does not lie. But on the other hand, it, you know, it, 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 the whole doggone thing leaves you with a queasy feeling that this something like this would be transpiring. I completely agree, Your Honor. And I, what I do is I point you to Judge Schwang's analysis of the record that really goes more to the Hopkins defendants that are now out of this case. And what he points out is that the decision to make this non-consensual was made on the ground by Dr. Cutler, who was a PHS doctor. It was kept in secret between him and Dr. Mahoney. And there's multiple correspondences between the two of them that say, we need to keep this as secret as possible because people will be upset, right? And so what that highlights is a few things. Number one, if anybody's responsible, it's the United States government. They've said they're responsible. President Obama apologized to the Guatemalan people for this. Number two, that I, and I think this gets to your uneasiness. I think it's the bad acts of a small group of individuals who, honestly, I have no problem here saying we're depraved people. I think Dr. Cutler at some level was a depraved person who decided to take advantage of a situation that he had in Guatemala that's completely at odds. Well, they may have thought that they were contributing in some odd way to the elimination of syphilis and to the elimination of... Uh, transmittable sexual disease. But there are some cases where the end simply does not justify the means. No way does the end justify the means. And even assuming that the end was salutary, the, the end does not justify the means in some situations. And this is absolutely one. I agree, Your Honor. The, and as we started at the outset, the question, of course, is, is the Rockefeller Foundation responsible? Not at all. And I would say, too, Your Honor, I, I, I think Judge Schwang addresses the sort of uneasiness that comes with, with, um, with this case in that it's really because in Garcia, the case where the United States government and the successor to the PASB was sued, the United States and that entity asserted sovereign immunity, which, of course, was their right to do. But in other situations, the United States has said, we did something, we're not going to let ourselves be sued, but we are going to recompense the victims of those wrongs, and that's fully capable here. They could set up a fund, they could do other things. What the plaintiffs here can't do, though, is hold the Rockefeller Foundation for things that it did not do, that it had no role in bringing about, and that it can't be held liable under the ATS because it's an extraterritorial application of that statute. Well, I, you know, this isn't clearly that, but you know, American law um, upholds the the principle of um, even. I mean, when there's no responding, it's superior that you don't uh, find guilt by association. Right. But this, I gather, your point is this isn't even association. N not at all, Your Honor. And and actually, I don't we mean. Don't, to... I mean, we don't find. We don't find guilt by association. 
unless through Rhonda responded superior or some such. Um, but your point is, Your Honor, this doesn't even bring guilt by association into it because there's no association. There's no association. In fact, the PASB Constitution that he was that Dr. Soper was bound to follow said he was prohibited from taking instructions from anybody outside the PSB. This gets to Judge Hayton's point that it would be an untenable regime if you had people appointed to government positions, or in this case, nominated by the U.S. government and elected by sovereign nations that are members of the PASB, and yet somehow they either are taking direction or the, the entity that it comes from can be held responsible through some extremely attenuated theory that has no evidentiary basis whatsoever. Can I ask you that? I, I meant to ask uh, your friend on the other side. As a, formal, as a formal legal matter, how did he get this job? As a for, yeah. So as a formal, like, uh, yeah. so on my wall in my office, I have a document. The document has the name of the President of the United States on it, and mm-hmm. it says that he nominated and by, and with the permission of the Senate appointed me, and, and that's why I have this job, and that's why right. I'm sitting here. So as a formal legal matter, who appointed Dr. Soper to the PASB? Yeah, it's a great question. It actually, I think, gets to the disconnect, one of the many disconnects between the pleadings in this case and the ultimate evidence that came at summary judgment. As a formal legal matter, he was nominated by the U.S. government, I believe, through the State Department. And then he was elected at a conference of the PASB through the sovereign nation states that make up the PASB. Which was who? Just broadly speaking. It, it was general, the, it was the Pan American Sanitary Bureau, so I couldn't tick off every every one of the states, but it's Central and South America, okay. essentially. Um, and, and you know, at the pleading stage, plaintiffs had this... I guess as a formal legal matter, who could have fired him? The, the member states of the PASB. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the pleading stage, there was this theory that the RF had embedded him there, was the phrase that was used. On page 46 to 47 of Judge Schwang's opinion, he points out that allegation is completely unsupported. There's nothing to suggest that the RF had any power or authority or even tried to embed him in the PASB. He was elected the same way that members of international organizations and U.S. government agencies are appointed or elected. As I I mentioned, the PASB Constitution, which carried forward principles of the WHO Constitution, just to give you some nitty-gritty, the PASB was essentially a subsidiary of the WHO. Um, Both of them had provisions in their Constitution that prohibited him from taking instruction Every salient piece of evidence in the record points out that Dr. Soper, Dr. Strode, who was his boss pre-appointment at at the RF, and the PISB itself repeatedly said he was on leave of absence from the Rockefeller Foundation from February of 1947 all the way through when he retired um, formally from the RF in 1950. In fact, at the time of his retirement from the RF, there was an inter-office memo that said he was on leave since his appointment as the PISB director in February of 1947. Plaintiffs have not put forth any evidence that remotely uh, refutes that. Um, the other thing I would say, just a, just a few other points that came out in the opening argument that I just want to touch on. Uh, you know, Judge Hudson, you asked the question of what is the specific evidence that the RF was actually controlling him? That's the critical question under the restatement, under Standard Oil, under Denton's, and there is no specific specific evidence. You asked the question, you got a bunch of generalities. And I things. asked because there was nothing in the record that would, would allow me to draw that conclusion. I, I completely agree, Your Honor. And and I, my friend on the other side at various times has suggested this is a question that must go to the jury. That's not true. There's no law, there's no case law that has ever said that agency always must go to the jury. Agency is a question of law that obviously is decided by reference to certain facts 
The facts are not actually a dispute well, here. It, 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 agency might be a question of law or it could be a question of fact. But the, could be, the, there the, could be disputed questions. What you're saying is that there's no genuine issue of triable fact correct. on this record. Correct. And that as a result of that, it can be resolved as a question of law. But an agency is not invariably something that is resolved as a question of law. Cor correct, Your Honor. And what I would say is Denton is actually quite telling on this point. While that case was tried to a jury, it was then reversed by the appellate court and the Supreme Court affirmed that reversal, which tells you that a jury is not the ultimate arbiter in all instances of whether agency existed. And The bottom line is under Federal Rule 56 and under Celotex, there's got to be a genuine issue of triable fact. Correct. And, and your point is that's, that's not here on this record. Not here on this record, and I, and I think Judge Schwang did a very thorough and detailed job of, of wading through the voluminous record. I would also point out in just the last minute I have, this, this was a situation where plaintiffs had an extensive amount of discovery. I mean, the Rockefeller Foundation literally opened its doors to its archives and invited them in and let them search for anything that they could find. We devoted hours and days of archivist time searching for and giving them documents. It's not a situation where there was not an opportunity to prove their claims. They just completely failed to do so. Unless the, the court has any further questions, we respectfully ask that you affirm. Thank you. We thank you, and we'd like to hear from Mr. Jenkins in rebuttal. Yes, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, the foundation did open its archives to us, and we did spend an extensive amount of time there. And one of the documents we found when we were there, we've cited in our brief, it's the uh, joint appendix starting. Can you get that microphone as close as possible to <coughs> yes, you? Yes, yes, excuse you. me. I want to be sure to hear what you say. Certainly. One of the documents we found there in their archive, it's an internal foundation document, talks about the way it functions and the way its personnel function. And it's really important to spend a bit of time with this. Mr. Jenkins, before you get into the details, can I just ask you something that really bothered me? Is this one of the documents that you cited in your brief that you did point out to the district court or that you didn't point out to the district court? No, it was definitely pointed out to the district court. Okay, so this was something, I, it just strikes me as deeply troubling that in your brief you ask us to reverse a district court grant of summary judgment in part by pointing to evidence that you did not point to before the district court. None of that, that those documents or evidence which we flagged and, and clearly in footnoting um, sure, but I, don't, but I don't understand procedurally how you can possibly ask us to reverse a district court judge by referencing evidence, whether you flag it or not, that you didn't bring to the district court's attention. There were only six documents. Only six? I think there were only six, <laughs> six documents too many? That, that were not brought to the district court's attention. Okay, and none so of those are relevant. Of, this is one of them that you actually pointed out to the district court. We did, in fact, okay. yes. And it's, it's actually a very important document. And this document states that the operating programs pursued by the International Health Division of the Foundation, which is its operating division, have to pursue a need for new knowledge. They're supposed to respond to an urgent need for new knowledge, and they're supposed to respond to it by pursuing aggressive methods of scientific exploration that depart from the traditional methods to accelerate results. And the document talks about the Foundation working through governments and external agencies and hiding itself behind their work, but directing the work through an individual that they've appointed to the agency in a senior position as a director. And that is precisely what's happened here. In April of 1947, in the New York Times, 
Waldemar Kampfwert, and this is cited in our record, it's in the record, uh, published an article saying that doctors at Johns Hopkins had injected rabbits with syphilis and determined that penicillin could prevent them from contracting the disease, but that since we couldn't inject human beings with syphilis in the same way, it would take years to find out whether penicillin could stop syphilis in humans. But guess what? Within a, uh, <clears throat> within a year of making that, that article being published, Dr. Soper, while being played, paid by the foundation, sitting in Washington, D.C., was, as the investigator of the Guatemala experiments, was writing a memo and declaring that he had found new knowledge, the same words as used in this Rockefeller Foundation document, new knowledge regarding the efficacy of penicillin in controlling syphilis. And he said that with reference to the Guatemala experiments. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that the experiments and, and Dr. Sopo's role in them, his role as the investigator, is, as he said himself, not an abandonment of the work of the foundation, but a fulfillment of its programs. You're, that is you're evidence. Opposing, your opposing counsel um, says that he only visited the Guatemalan facility or visited Guatemala only once, and that he had no knowledge that the experiments um, were uh, non-consensual. And I said, and even if he did have knowledge, that was insufficient, um, that, that, he may, that he may have known of the experiments, but not that they were non-consensual. And that, as I say, he visited Guatemala only, only once. And so there's that first link that Dr. Soper was not materially involved in what happened here. And even if you get past that, you got the second level about whether the Rockefeller Foundation was involved because the... As I understand it, the experiments were designed and they were approved and they were funded by PHS and that the experiments were conducted by PHS researchers uh, working for PASB. So the U.S. government through the public health service, a government agency, and PASB are the ones that seem to be thoroughly responsible, um, both in the design and approval and funding um, and conduct of the experiments. Right. And they're the, they're the prime movers, and you... you and we're trying to drag a tangential actor, if that, into it and through him to an even more tangential actor in the Rockefeller Foundation. This is, this is unfortunately a government um, enterprise. 
address may I address that your honor so go ahead. so it's our my uh, colleague chose to say that we attempted to misdirect this court which I object to and and I could say the same of, of him because it's not the case that dr. Soper went to Guatemala only once he went many times he did go on one of those occasions and enter into his diary detailed entries showing that he knew that they were injecting gonococcus into patients in an insane asylum who are fundamentally inherently incapable of giving any consent so he had the knowledge he knew that was happening and his role as as uh, mr beckman was trying to explain earlier as an investigator in these experiments meant that it was his responsibility his responsibility his primary responsibility to ensure the safety of the human subjects in that asylum if he knew they were being injected with gonococcus and he failed to do if, anything if, if we do if we if we were to assume simply arguendo that you are correct on that you're still dealing with that first lit linkage to dr soper and the linkage to the Rockefeller Foundation is something that is, is even more difficult to establish. And as I say, the Supreme Court seems to be, when I look at the Supreme Court decisions, whether they're the old Supreme Court decisions like Standard Oil, or whether they're modern Supreme Court decisions under the alien tort statute. Um, they seem to be saying, we're not signing off on broad respondeat superior and, and agency relationships can't be too casually inferred because they are in danger of roping in entirely innocent parties. And... and that seems to me to be sort of a combined lesson to, to take from the, this bouquet of Supreme Court cases. Your Honor, the Rockefeller Foundation is not entirely innocent in this case. I just read to you one of its fundamental core internal documents, which we took. They don't dispute that that's their document. And, and it says how they operate. And they operate precisely the way in which this experiment happened. They embed, and I'm going to address Judge Hayden's if I may, I'm, I think I'm over my time. May I continue? Please. I, I would like to hear. Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, they embed directing personnel and external organizations, and they exert their influence and exploit opportunities. When, when Dr. Soper was, was sent to the, the Pan American Sanitary Bureau, Dr. Strode, who was the director of the International Health Division at the Foundation, said he had been working for two years to get in there. Dr. Perrin, who was a trustee of the foundation and the Surgeon General at the time, wanted him, hand-picked him. These, these, this is in the record, and it's in the record that was cited below. It's, it's in the joint appendix. Um, so how did he get there? Yes, technically he was nominated by the Surgeon General of the United States. At that time, the United States provided over half of the budget of this, of this organization. And as, as the defendants have said, it was on the verge of bankruptcy. So who was calling the shots? Let's be honest, right? We're controlling the cash flow. So it isn't as simple as that. Yes, he was nominated. Yes, he was elected. That's because our Surgeon General said he had to be. And because the United States was paying half the budget of this group. And who paid the other half, according to Dr. Soper? And this is in the record, and it was cited below. 
he names two private foundations that made up the rest of the budget. One of them is the Rockefeller Foundation. The other one's the Kellogg Foundation. So money by itself in Standard Oil, yes, the mere payment of salary isn't conclusive in and of itself. But when you're paying the salary of the director of an organization that's bankrupt, and unless you pay it, it doesn't have a director, that's influential. That's control. And they could have made an open grant to the PASB, like they did for one of the nurses they sent down there at his request. They chose to pay him a salary, which they could shut off at any moment. And that's a financial leash. That's control. And they made him report back, and he did repeatedly. On duty, on duty means he was on duty for the foundation. They produced no evidence that that term means that he was on duty for the, the Bureau, that that's what he meant. No, he was on duty for the foundation. That's the purpose of those reports. And we've got a document in the record that says that's how it should be interpreted, that his duty status was on duty for the foundation. So here we have an individual who was paid a salary, who was on duty for the foundation by his own terms, who's implementing a modus operandi that is described in detail in one of the foundation's own documents as, as the individual they placed there and worked hard to place there for two years. And we can't have a jury decide if there's an agency relationship. We've created a genuine issue of material fact here. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to conclude that we're going to convince a jury. That's not the test. We've created a real issue. And we're entitled to the inferences drawn in our favor. Right, thank you, counsel. We appreciate it. And we will um, uh, take a brief recess in order to uh, reconstitute the panel. Thank you, um, thank you both very much. If you want to go shake hands, that's great. I'm under doctor's orders to uh, sit up here. <laughs> but I very much appreciate your arguments on both sides, nevertheless. This honorable court will take a brief recess. Thank you.